0: Well, just consider, I know we, we read these accounts like Van just read a moment ago, but just consider what he read. You have, as we talked about last week, tens of thousands of Christians who are scattered because of persecution after Stephen's martyrdom. Philip crosses kind of to the other side of the tracks and goes into Samaria. We'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. This is a place though where no self-respecting Jew would ever go. And yet he goes there and he preaches Christ there. And the crowds of people listen to Philip proclaim the Gospel. And many many of these people, as we'll see, they've been ensnared by demons. And there seems to be this really satanic oppression in this region. And yet, scores of men and women... Trust in Christ. And they're baptized. This The most unlikely people we would think, humanly speaking, uh, they respond to the Gospel in faith. And a whole city, probably a significant part of this region, is transformed and filled with this overflowing joy. That's the way the text tells us. Isn't that incredible? Yes? I mean... Is that crazy? Did that really happen? Could that really happen? Or maybe I says, could that happen today? Is that possible? We, we, we can become somewhat numb and, uh, yeah, okay. When we read passages like this, that's unfortunate. But these powerful movements of grace that we're seeing in Acts, they ought to, they ought to do something in us, they ought to impact us. So as you think about this episode in Acts that we see here, and and in the flow of what we've been uh, seeing throughout our study of Acts so far, would you describe what we're reading here as a controlled burn or as a raging wildfire? Yes, I'm using another fire illustration. That is my Mother's Day gift to you today. No, but, but a controlled burn. So a controlled burn, I don't know that this is done as much anymore, and certainly in Georgia, it's probably because of environmental issues, I don't know, but it was very common in Texas when I was growing up that people would burn their yards, uh, they had kind of a control burn, they would you know, have the little torches out there, the weed burners, and they would start their grass on fire, it would kill insects, kill weeds, kill you know, diseases, all of those kinds of things, and in grass, the thought was grass would grow back thicker and healthier in the spring, so you'd do it in early spring and then it would be nice in the summer. So, or, or you think even of larger scale. I mean, uh, this kind of strategic uh, fires that are set in national forests or, or something to kind of clean out the undergrowth and better manage the, the forest life and, the, and that ecosystem. We, were, we go out to Cumberland Island every now and then to hunt, a group of us. And the last time we went was since there had been a controlled burn and it totally changed the island. It's, it's, it's very different now. Um, so, in a controlled burn, the, the fire, in theory, it, it goes where you want it to go. It, it, you have a, you know, if you're doing your yard, you have a water hose in one hand and a rake in the other hand, and and so you're ready to put it out as soon as it oversteps that boundary, it goes into your neighbor's yard, for instance. And so, so you have these restricted co- confines that you've set up to control that fire. And so it's very purposeful. It's very closely managed. It should be. At wildfires, though, they're fast moving. They're uncontained. They're out of control. They're generally unplanned, unless you're an arsonist. Uh, I'm not. I'm, it's different than a, to be a pyromaniac doesn't mean you're an arsonist. But uh, but you know usually they're caused by a lightning strike or you know some something comes on a power power line and, and sparks fly. A cigarette butt flown out of thrown out of a car window, a campfire that gets away with wind that kind of thing. So it's swept along wherever the winds blow. That's where it goes. Very erratic. Very fast spreading. There are there's a big wildfire burning right now in New Mexico and threatening all kinds of you know property and stuff in in, in that area and so we've you know if you've been to Gatlinburg and the uh, since they had their big fires. You can see the devastation and how quickly you talk to locals and how fast that spread and how out of control it was so with that image in mind, what are we seeing with the gospel's advance with the church's growth here in the book of Acts, even in this passage? is this a very predictable uh meticulously managed, highly regulated, purposeful, controlled burn? Or is this a fast-moving, unplanned, out-of-control, uncontainable, erratic wildfire? Or is it something different entirely? Well, you think about it, until chapter 8, verse 1, the fire that has been, has been burning and growing basically just within Jerusalem, it's been confined to, largely con- contained there, But what do we see after Stephen's martyrdom, after this, quote, great persecution arose against the church, you have these, again, tens of thousands of Christians who who were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So remember last week's fire illustration, we talked about trying to, there was this attempt to try and extinguish this this flame of the gospel, the flame of the church, and and it was kind of like beating a campfire with a shovel. Yes, you can extinguish that fire, that one flame, but you send those hot embers and sparks flying everywhere, and it just sets off other fires. And so the Stephen flame may have been extinguished by, by the persecution, uh, by his stoning, but these other hot, glowing uh, witnesses have now been flung out, and it's causing this rapid spread, rapid growth of the gospel and of the church. So we get to verse 4 again. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, literally evangelizing the word. That word preaching here is, is the word we get of evangelism. And there's this, there's this wildness, isn't there, about what, what's recorded here in this passage. You can't read these words and picture God just kind of standing there with a, a little garden hose and uh, just kind of squirting some water out and this, you know, three inch tall grass and it's just kind of slowly creeping across the lawn. Lo- That's not the picture we get here, but it's not totally out of control either it, it, this isn't just mass hysteria. The, the God's Spirit is moving and He's working and, and while He's incredibly powerful and He's unhindered, it, there's order to it. And, and I say that in this. That all this incredible and stuff that's happening here, it's, it's happening because what's going on? The Word is going forth. they are scattering and they're preaching the Word. This clear, and we say the Word, it's this clear, definite message of the Gospel. This is the word, this, and that's what people are responding to. And when and when some want to take it outside of those bands uh, bounds, the apostles, God sends the apostles, and they come and kind of step in. And so, before we go on, let me just say at the beginning, and you may have already picked this up, there are a couple challenges and questions that come out in this passage. There are two big ones in particular. The first one is this: is here. And we're going to see this again in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 19. It's going to be like same song, second verse, and I'll try to shrink the explanation each time. But it looks as though the Holy Spirit is coming in two stages. You see this. So He comes first to convert, to regenerate. The people believed and and were baptized. And then later, through the instrumentality of the apostles, the Spirit comes on these people. And so it looks like we're kind of seeing these additional Pentecost moments. We've said Pentecost is unrepeatable. But here it seems like it's repeatable. And this has caused some problems throughout church history and some questions. And there are a lot of our church history and the the divisions and distinctions and denominations can be explained in, in, in part by this passage and the questions that are raised. Is this supposed to be the norm? Or is this something that's exceptional and something that's unique to the early church? Is this... You can say, is this prescriptive? We should be doing this. This should be that. This is what we should expect. Or is this descriptive? Looking at this time in history, are we supposed to be converted and then later have some kind of second experience of the Holy Spirit? A very popular form of this in uh, in the 19th century was the Keswick movement, and so um, higher, or it's called higher life movement, or second blessing, so that the the Spirit comes later in the second. Second work of grace, second uh, coming of the spirit in your life. This is a lot of Pentecostalism grows out of this. So' that's, that's one question. We'll come back to that. Another problem, another question here is this whole issue of Simon, Simon the magician. So we read that he believed, he was baptized by Philip, but when then when Peter and John come down, the, the, their words make us begin to wonder if he was truly born again, what they say to him and what he says. So was Simon, Converted, and then he somehow fell from grace. We just rule that one out first. Was he never converted at all? Or was Peter saying something not so much about his conversion, about his justification, but about his consecration or sanctification? That he was saved, but as one commentator says, only by the skin of his teeth. So we're going to work to answer those questions in a way that I hope is satisfactory. Uh no promises there's no money back guarantee on this sermon or anything like that but but all that said listen i don't want to scare you i don't want you to be thinking that this is some kind of hmm, problem passage and we need to snarl our lip and get really anxious about it and get worked up about it no this is a wonderful passage this is i want us to see the wonder of it and the glory of it as we walk through this this text i want to it, it, to expand our understanding of and our delight in and our hope for the Spirit's working and the unrivaled power of the name of Jesus Christ and of His Gospel. Nothing can stop it. And to fuel your praying for that kind of work even in our own day. That's my hope and prayer as I've been thinking through this this week. So for the remainder of our time, I want us to walk through this passage and observe on one hand kind of the, the apparent wildness, the unstoppability uh, of it and yet on the other hand the order of our ongoing mission of the of our triune god and so what we'll realize is things aren't always as they appear and so keep that in mind so there are some wordy points today if i had another day i would have i would have really worked hard to shrink these down so forgive me and this is why they're on the screen so the first point is this when it seems like suffering might extinguish the fire of the gospel god uses the howling winds of persecution to fan the flames of its advance. I told you it was worthy. And it is. Right, yes, you can't argue with me. So we made this point already. This was, we talked about this last week, and I've reiterated this in the introduction, so I'm not going to belabor this. But in verse 4, again, Luke gives us a summary of, of what's going to come after this persecution. So verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now the little particle there now, it, 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 it literally would be translated something like, therefore on the other hand. So on the un, on the one hand, persecution is growing, but on the other hand, the word is is spreading, and so in spite of, or really in a sense, um, because of this opposition, the word of the gospel is growing and it's running and it's bearing fruit. And so it's it's not that we're to pray for persecution as if it's some kind of ideal cli- climate for. For the gospel to grow in we should pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters as we do and and we pray that there would be relief and there would be protection and there would be release from those who are, for those who are in prison. But that's not all we pray for. We, we, we pray for the word to run. We pray for even if our brothers and sisters must flee to escape death we pray that they'll be used by God to, to reach others in other places. And so the apparent setbacks that the church faces, they, they shouldn't make us despair ultimately. No, seen from God's, God's vantage point, they, they're, they're often preparation for the gospel's advance in new places and, and with greater effect. That's what we see here. So do you, just a question, do you see the setbacks in your life, and in our church, and our community, do you see those as opportunities to tell the good news of Christ in new venues and in new ways? New doors that God may be opening. New relationships that are opening up for you. New connections that He's establishing. New courage that He gives. Jesus often uses unfavorable circumstances to build His church, even even when it seems very unlikely. Second, when it seems like the spread of the Gospel is limited to the reach of a few leaders, God raises up and He sends out a whole bunch of ordinary, quote, Evangelists. And so again, we, we touched on this last week, but remember back in verse one, every, everybody that scattered from the persecution, everybody went except the apostles. That's what the text says. Remember? So the big guns, the apostles, they stay put in Jerusalem, everybody else is gone. And so it was these you know, quote, ordinary, everyday, but spirit-filled believers who went out courageously proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, preaching the word. The, the thought never occurred to them, it doesn't seem, that, that evangelism was something that was just kind of left to, the, to just a few kind of professional Christians. The apostles or a few others. No, where, wherever ordinary Christians went, they just talked to people about their Savior. And the Lord used that to, to just cause this wildfire-like spread of the Gospel. We're going to see this, not just here, but it's going to continue to show up. This is how the early church grew. This will be evident through Acts. This is how the church still grows. It's it's not through the preaching of a few anointed people, apostles in this case, but it's when every believer is filled with God's Spirit and is testifying to the good news of Jesus Christ wherever they are. Wherever God takes them. And Philip's one of those. So verse 5, Philip went down and he proclaimed to them, the Christ, to the Samaritans. He's the first person. Philip's going to be the first person and really the only person in, in, in the New Testament that's called an evangelist. We'll see this in Acts 21, verse 8. He's not an apostle. He's not a hired pastor. He's not some commissioned missionary uh, you know, that's just been appointed in some way. He's just one of the seven. Their original task is to look after some widows in the church of Jerusalem. But this ordinary guy is used by the Lord to do this fruitful labor. So I'm, I can see a couple of Philips sitting in the back right now. That's a good namesake you have, guys. And so this is, this is great. Some of those early believers like Philip, they may have been gifted. They may have been used by God to be able to speak to great crowds of people, but everyone went out as witnesses of Christ in whatever sphere the Lord put them. That's a great thing. And so I think, I just say experientially, I think some of the most effective evangelists, witnesses, tend to be ordinary folks like you and me. That, that, but yet, they're captivated. They're overwhelmed by God's grace and mercy. And, and that makes them compassionate towards sinners. And it makes them bold in testifying to hope that we have in Jesus Christ. This is why I'm thankful that Thomas began his prayer the way he did. It's just reminding us, tendering, tenderizing, that the Lord would soften our hearts to... Remind us of the greatness of His grace towards us in Christ. We were children of wrath prepared for destruction. But the more we apprehend that, the more we understand His mercy towards us, that makes us compassionate. And so this is where most evangelism happens. It's not usually pastors who are most effective in evangelism. It's people who just think differently about their time about their resources, about their house, about their family, about their neighborhood, about their community, about relationships, about their workplace, about their schools. And they naturally talk about what's most important to them in those contexts. Or who's most important? Christ. That's, that's where most of the work happens. Moms, let me just, if I could connect this to you, you, you have been sent by Christ to be His witnesses right where you are. Motherhood can be in should be leveraged for the ongoing mission of our triune God. Your responsibilities, your roles, I know there's a lot of them and, and they're varied and and it can seem overwhelming and, and 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 those change over time, the different seasons of motherhood. But wherever you are right now, you have unique opportunities to point lost sinners to Christ. You start in your own home with your own children. Talk more about that. And, but your neighbors and other parents that you run into in the community, at the playground, and the PTA meetings, and if you work and at church and all of these places, you have wonderful God-given opportunities to give a clear and compassionate defense for the hope that you have. So don't, please, please don't hear me saying, what what I what what I need you, what I need to do is I need to get busier. I need to cram some more stuff in here. That's what Justin's telling me right now. I just need to, you know, I just need to reorder things and squeeze some more stuff in the mouth that's not it i mean in the rhythm of your life the, ask the lord to grow in your heart of compassion for sinners courage to talk about christ as you that you would just pray for the lost that you would think about and, and just care for people that god has put around you that you would live in fellowship with other believers that that would tend to help you reach out that you would move towards the lost in very simple and, and loving ways and good deeds and Open your mouth and talk to others about the hope that you have in Christ. And that's all I'm talking about. One definition of evangelism I think is very helpful in this vein. It's, it's just a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a community to bring joy to it through word and deed. That's good. Third. Third thing. That when it seems things are different than they appear. When it seems like the Gospel might be just some kind of niche message God takes it across the tracks to new and unexpected people. So look at verse 5 again. Philip went down where? To the city of Samaria. And he proclaimed to them the Christ. Now you may be thinking, what's the big deal? This is crazy. And the crowds, those Samaritan crowds, with one accord, they paid attention to what he was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, and, or when they heard Him and saw the signs that He did. Now, listen, some background. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the Jews hated Samaritans. Hated them. And the feeling was mutual. And this animosity went back for centuries, hundreds of years. When the Assyrian army came and they took the northern Uh, northern kingdom of Israel uh, captive. They took them away. There were some Hebrew people who were left behind. And those Jews ended up intermarrying with with Gentile settlers, foreigners who settled in Samaria uh, in the place of Israel. And so the Samaritans became this kind of part Jewish, part Gentile people. And so for the true Jews, ethnic Jews, this meant the Samaritans, they were the worst. They were... They were strangers to the covenant. Everything that was wrong with humanity. But the Samaritans, they, they, because they had that Jewish connection, they still tried to keep some connection to Judaism. In fact, they, they even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim as this kind of rival temple to the one in Jerusalem. That, was, that went over well. And, and, and they got that was prohibited by God, of course, in the Old Testament. They got around this. But they, they only adhered to the first five books of the Old Testament, to the Torah, the, the books of Moses. The rest they rejected. And so Jewish prejudice towards the Samaritans that ran very, very, very deep. They were the, the Samaritans were regarded by the Jews as just as ethnically polluted, religiously confused, morally debased, and on and on. And so by Jesus' day, Jews virtually had zero dealings with Samaritans. You see this in John chapter 4. They would, they would go far out of their way to walk all the way around Samaria rather than to go the straight way between Galilee and Jerusalem, which was right through Samaria. No, 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 no. They wouldn't risk contaminating themselves by walking through Samaria. Stepping on Samaritans. Samaria was covenantal no man's land. And yet, what do we find? And Jesus, during His earthly ministry... He stepped across the border multiple times. He, he This was too, too much the confusion, the frustration, really the disapproval of His disciples. This was not a place that they, they, they would tell their parents that they went. So Jesus reached out to a Samaritan leper and He cleansed His uncleanness. Luke 17, He shared a cup with a Samaritan woman and offered her living water. John chapter 4, He told the story of the good Samaritan. There's an oxymoron. To this Jewish lawyer who's trying to trip him up. And of course, in his commission to his followers, Acts 1.8, Jesus explicitly says they are to be his witnesses in Samaria. None of this would have changed likely the feelings and the thoughts that the apostles had towards the Samaritans, these Jewish background Christians. This was deeply ingrained prejudice, and it would not be easily shaken. So for Philip to go to Samaria and proclaim Christ to them in word and deed was incredible. This is remarkable. Now, Philip himself, remember? We talked about this a few weeks ago. He was a Gentile too. And he was part of that Hellenistic, that Greek-speaking portion of the church in Jerusalem. So he was born to Greek parents. He converted to Judaism at some time. And then later, he converted and trusted in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so maybe... God used Philip's own kind of marginalized status to give him greater compassion for the Samaritans. We're not told, but whatever the case, there's no no indication that Samaritan prejudice deterred Philip. And so God's missionary heart that that beats for the whole world, it seems to be alive in Philip. That's the work of the Lord. And so he seems to see what God sees. people, Lost people in need of rescue. And so Philip preaches Christ in this city of Samaria, maybe the capital. And look what happens. Verse 12. So skip down to verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So the, the conversion of these Samaritans, their inclusion into the church was this monumental moment in redemptive history. It was this, it was marking this new, new expansion of the gospel in different territory, different people growth of the church and this is why i believe that to answer that first kind of question and problem that i alluded to earlier i think this is why god waited to pour his spirit out on these new samaritan believers until the apostles from the the mother church in jerusalem are there to witness god's reception of them as brothers and sisters in christ so skip down to verse 14 now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the apostles hear that the gospel is taken root in Samaria through Philip's preaching, and, and, and there, are, there will be a similar thing that happens when the gospel goes to the Gentiles in, in Acts chapter 11. But in both cases, Peter's present when the Spirit comes on these new converts and these new groups of people, the Samaritans and the Gentiles. But in Samaria, it's not just Peter, it's Peter and John. Now, do you remember the account? Remember what John did? Well, he wanted to do anyway. When the, the a Samaritan village didn't refuse to welcome Jesus into it, what did he say? He wanted to call down lightning on them. Wipe them out. Nuke them, Lord. I mean this was his attitude that was reflective of most Jews at that time. But if so if John of all people could join Peter in testifying to God's embrace of the Samaritans, we, we wouldn't argue with that testimony, would we? And so verse 17 they lay then they laid their hands on them and they received the holy spirit. There's no misunderstand what's happening here. Simon's going to misunderstand what's happening, but let's not make that same mistake. God didn't bring the apostles to Samaria to dish out the Holy Spirit. It's not what this is about. They didn't have that power in and of themselves at all. He brought them there to witness the Samaritans receiving the Spirit. The Lord didn't need the apostles there to do this. I hope not, because we wouldn't have the Spirit. But the Lord delayed the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit for the apostles' sake and for the churches, for ours. To make it crystal clear to them that God had fully accepted these Samaritans' faith and, and it made them full-fledged brothers and sisters in Christ. Part of the church. The unique delay in receiving the Spirit and the way that the Spirit comes through the apostles praying for them it has everything to do with that long-standing hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans. That's what this is about. That's why this unique time. And so the big headline is this, is Jesus brings the most unlikely people into His church, even the Samaritans. Listen, God wants to reach all people, even those that we would look at and say they're not very likely candidates for salvation. We have to drop our prejudices. We have to see people as the Lord sees them people from every ethnicity, every culture, every background, every religion, every lifestyle, every, every, every everything, every region as prime candidates of the gospel. Those who seem to be, quote, unreachable, they're not. They're not. And this is case in point right here. Those with a different biblical, different, that, that don't hold to a biblical sexual ethic. They need Christ. and He is powerful to save. Those who are militant atheists, atheists, they need Jesus and He can save them too. Those who who have radically different political orientations and ideologies, and that could be in both directions, they need Christ. He can save them. Those Muslim jihadists, they need Christ. He He can save them. Jesus will have people from the most unlikely places and people groups around His throne giving Him His praise. You know how I know that? Because we'll be there. What did Thomas read as he prayed in Ephesians 2? We were all like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath prepared for destruction. We were enslaved to the spirits of this world. We were in bondage to this thing. So it's crazy that the gospel came to us and that we've received it and we've been born again. We ought to be amazed by that reality. And, 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 and we ought not then to limit. So I'll just ask you a question. Which, which individuals in your life, which groups of people in our culture, in our world, do you kind of mentally categorize? You might not say it, but you mentally categorize them as beyond the perimeter of God's saving love and power. Are there those? Fourth, when it seems like the gospel is in for a fierce fight, God proves Himself to be unrivaled by supposed competitors. So Samaritan religion, it tended to be quite syncretistic, meaning that it absorbed different pagan elements into it. And it was this kind of conglomerate of, of different religions, including some Judaism, at least the Torah. And so they this left them open to all kinds of demonic influence. And that's very evident. Many of them had unclean spirits that God used Philip to cast out. In addition, we're introduced in verse 9 to this larger-than-life figure named Simon. his well-known, quote, magician in Samaria. And so he commanded the attention of the masses of people. He, The text says he amazed them with his trickery, his wonder-working powers. And so... He promoted himself as you know somebody great, and the people believed him. And They said this about him: verse ten, "This man is the power of God and is called great." The word "great" and "magician," uh, "magic," they're 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 very closely related in the Greek. It's kind of a play on words there. And so, uh, so 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 he's basically this guy's the visible manifestation of God. That's what they're saying. And so they, what do we find though here? The people. Used to pay attention to Simon, you knows that phrase. They paid attention. Now, what do we say? They're paying attention to Philip. It was changed. Now, what kind of magician was he? Was he kind of you know doing like, you know, first century version of card tricks and you know bending a spoon and kind of sawing somebody in half that kind of a thing? It, it, it's possible that it was some of that. That there were these tricks that he had learned and maybe purchased these kind of secrets from other magicians and. Doing that stuff that could be repeated by modern day illusionists. I enjoy that kind of stuff and it's fascinating to me the skill that's involved in that. But, but given the context, given the prevalence of unclean spirits, it's likely that some of what he amazed people with was, was supernatural power. Not the power of God, but the power of demons. And so there, there will be other places in Acts where we see this very thing explicitly mentioned. And magicians and fortune tellers and sorcerers, Acts 13 and 16, 19 will see this. So there may have been demonic power at work in and through Simon. But what I want you to see here is, is this. Whether it's unclean spirits filling, harassing people, whether it's magicians working their powers and miracles through demonic power, God and the power of the gospel are stronger. They are. It's not even close. And so Christ is powerful to save sinners, even those that are blatantly sold out and in bondage to the devil himself. And this is, again, Ephesians 2. The power of the gospel is greater than the power of demons and of spiritual darkness. Even even when proclaimed by the simple servant of widows, uh, Jesus' name and his gospel, they overpower rival forces of magic and evil. They bring freedom and peace and forgiveness and life and joy to those that have been long oppressed by Satan. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The one who used to amaze people is now amazed by what he sees Philip do. So Simon, Simon knew his power his, was formerly. It was nothing. It was trickery. It wasn't the power of God, and there were, and, and you see, Philip worked these wonders. There's no trickery in it. There's, this is the power of God working, and the only thing he knows to do is just kind of follow Philip around like a groupie, just just latch on to him, watch his ministry of preaching and healing and casting out demons. And so that's what he does. Now, I would just the question that I want to you consider: Do you ever feel that the gospel is somehow inadequate? to to respond to the evil and to the spiritual darkness and to the false ideologies and worldviews and religions and powerful systems of our own day? Can the simple message of Christ crucified and risen again really compete in the marketplace of ideas that we find in the world today? Yes, it can. That's not to minimize the reality and the power of of, of demonic influence. This is real. But it's just to say that Christ ultimately has no rival in them. And we're to take encouragement by what we read here. Last statement. And we'll be done. So when it seems like pretenders, or I'll call them, might hinder the church's growth, God knows and shows those who are truly His own. So Luke says very plainly in verse 13 that Simon himself believed. Now, at that point, he expects us to just simply take that at face value. Philip does. He doesn't doubt the authenticity of Simon's faith here. He baptizes Simon. He allows him to follow along as sort of a disciple. But then we read down verses 18 and 19. After Peter and John show up and they pray for the Spirit and they lay hands on the people and the Spirit falls on them, verse 18 now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands he offered them money saying give me this power also so he totally misunderstands what he's seeing so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the holy spirit so he's viewing the power of the spirit the way he viewed magic as if, if, if for selfish gain i think he sees dollar signs flashing here like man this is this is this has got real potential here and 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 so he's willing to part with some of his own silver, his own money to buy kind of this secret. And so maybe he can get back in the business again. Well, what, what, what do we find in verse 20? But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Now, this is, this is much harsher in the original Greek than it is in most English translations. I think a very helpful translation, the J.B. Phillips translation It's an older translation, but it gets a sense well. And so this is maybe PG, but he was saying to hell with you and your money. That's what he's saying. One commentator, may your money follow you into hell because that's where you're headed. He's not, he's not condemning Simon to hell. He's not wishing for his condemnation. That's not what Peter's saying here. But he's warning that eternal destruction lay in your front of you if, you if you don't repent. He goes on, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now, we hear if possible, and it, and it, it's less tentative than the English translation of that Greek phrase would sort of indicate. So we, to us, that sounds like it's probably less than 50-50. That's not the intended meaning. It it means it's near certainty if there's a response. This is the same idea we get into Acts chapter 17, where Paul's preaching on Mars Hill with the Athenians, and, and he says that God created people for a relationship with him, so that if perhaps they might grope for him, they will find him, though he is not far from each one of us. His point is, hey, if you see God, it will almost certainly... Result in you finding Him. And so what he's saying here, Simon, if, if, you, if he seeks repentance, Christ will certainly grant it. The question is whether Simon wants to repent. Verse 23, For I see, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I think this is probably an allusion to Deuteronomy 29.18. This expression, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman uh, or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations of idolatry, beware of this. Beware lest there be among you, quote, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Again, remember they 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 hold up the 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 book of Moses, and so here he's saying the Lord made it very clear in Deuteronomy that to to attempt to reduce the Lord to be to an idol to be manipulated for profit. Is, uh, is condemned. Simon's only hope is repentance, it's humble prayer for forgiveness, the intents of his heart. Why such strong language? Because what is this evidence of? It's evidence of Simon's failure to understand grace. He's trying to buy. He's trying to buy God's blessings and sa- that come through salvation. Free nature of God's salvation and blessings. That's, what, that's what's at stake. Verse 24, And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now, this is tricky because it's, there's, it's, it's kind of hard to tell whether there's any true repentance there or whether this is simply terror. It's not real clear. But I, I think the point, and Luke doesn't sort it out, but he, he wants us to leave his word, Peter's words kind of ringing in our ears. This caution, uh, that the thought that we could coerce God, treat Him as some kind of genie or something like that. Now what are we to make of this? Is this simply a new, young, immature believer who has a lot of growing to do? I mean, or, or is his heart being exposed here for really what it is, being an enmity with God, showing that he was never truly born again? Which one? Well, the clearest answer I can give to you is yes. It's one of those. (laughs) He could have been a believer. Some commentators reach that conclusion and, and do so somewhat cautiously, but they're in good company. This was John Calvin's interpretation of this passage. That he was a believer. Primarily, they say because there's nothing in the story that clearly or definitively makes the case that his belief was not saving faith. I, I I that's true in, in a sense because Christians can do some really truly horrible things and say horrible things. I think though, my inclination is that this the more natural reading of the text in its context indicates that Simon really didn't put his truly put his faith in Christ. And the problem was that he didn't believe enough, or that he didn't surrender all, or that he didn't, you know, wasn't committed enough. That's not it. The problem would be then, if that's the case, that and he, and he wasn't born again, that his belief wasn't truly in Christ and Christ alone. It wasn't the right object. It seems like he may have been impressed by the miracles. That's, that's the thing that stands out in what, as Luke records this, that's the thing that he really notes. It's his power. And he wanted to tap into the blessings of the gospel, but didn't put his faith in Christ alone as his only hope. So, a few reasons. Again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic here, but I, 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 some reasons why I think this is probably the case. One, the flow of the narrative places this account before a string of other conversions. We're going to get to the Ethiopian and Saul and Cornelius, and I would just say this one really stands set, is set apart from those others in the way that Luke records these accounts. Second, the fact that while it's said that Simon believed, we aren't told what he believed like we are about the samaritans in verse 12. Now that may just be kind of condensed language. But again, what's emphasized is, is he affirmed the reality of this power and these miracles and and and, and he wanted that for himself. That's what is told about it, Simon. Third, that conjunction in verse 13 and as kai in the Greek and and the way that he treats the samaritans separately from Simon, I think is, is indicative. There's some distinction there. Fourth, when the Spirit is given to the Samaritan believers, the way that Luke records it, it's like Simon is an observer, observer of that, not a participant. So he saw the Spirit given. Again, he may have received the Spirit, but there's no indication in the text that indicates that he himself received the Spirit, but he saw the Spirit, and there clearly were some visible signs, whether it was speaking in tongues or something that came upon the people. Fifth, Peter's words to Simon are strong. They, they, they indicate his heart is not right with God and he's in danger of going to destruction or hell if he doesn't repent. And verse 23, I mean, you couldn't look for a, a more fitting description of an unregenerate person that is trapped in the chains of wickedness. It's Ephesians 2. At the end... It's not clear, again, whether or not Simon prays or repents or is remorseful. Um, I don't think the meaning of verse 24 is entirely clear, but it could be that he's simply frightened by the negative consequences that Peter mentioned. And maybe an- another add on, and this is not from scripture, but if church history is any indicator, and sometimes it can be helpful and sometimes it cannot be, uh, it's not infallible. But there were multiple traditions in the very earliest days of the church that developed around Simon the Magician. He's in a lot of writings. And, and it was alleged by some that he became the founder of the Gnostic movement. It was alleged by others that he went to Rome and was very well known there as a magician and he distorted all kinds of Christian doctrine. Uh, some others said that he, became, he, he took part in this kind of miracle contest with Peter and lost but he ended up just going, following Peter and harassing him wherever he went. Again, none of that's inspired by God, but I just throw that out there. All that said, and this is Luke wants our attention where I want our attention now, and it's on the word of the Lord. So, what does he say? Verse 25, this is kind of a conclusion. He traces the apostles' return route to Jerusalem. Verse 25 Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the Gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, Peter and John, with this ingrained hatred toward the Samaritans, they... I 'm not saying the Lord hadn't already begun to soften some of that when they went, but they 've now seen the incredible work the spirit was doing through the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ in Samaria of all places, and what do they do? they just take their time getting back to Jerusalem they stop town by town and they're preaching that Christ is the Jesus is the Messiah people pointing people to Christ, so a pretender like Simon perhaps was, he doesn't derail the ongoing mission of our triune God. There's going to be other people that pop up in our story, and not one of them, not one of them is an ultimately a hindrance. Nothing can stop what God is doing. So how in the world does this passage connect to mothers and to the rest of us? Let me just give you a, a couple things. and We're really out of time. I just realize I'm looking back there now. Forgive me. I'm going on vacation next week, so you, you know, you just maybe your attitude toward me will soften by the time I get back. Um, so, one, the overall impact of this passage should be the should be we should be in awe of the power of Christ and His name, and the way He works through the Spirit. That's what moms need to trust in. That's where our hope is. That's what kids need to see in us and hear from us. That's what, that's what should be on display in our dinner table, the thing that should excite us, the thing we sing about. That, that should be what fuels our praying. That should be what shapes how we view other lost sinners. It's the power of Christ, the work of the Spirit. Uh, so uh, f- out of that, one, pray for the reviving work of God's Spirit in your children's generation or your grandchildren's. Pray for this Pray for a massive outpouring of grace and power like we see here in this Samaritan city, like we've seen at other times in church history, but haven't seen in some time, at least here. Pray that against all odds, with an unlikely people, in the midst of spiritual darkness and deception, all kinds of trickery around us, in the face of growing persecution with the reality of ethnic and cultural division and prejudice making it seemingly impossible, pray that the gospel that is the power of God to salvation for all who believe would explode in an abundant harvest. Pray for a great awakening. More than your kids and their generation need better government leaders or better schools or safer streets or whatever it is, and those things are... Are, are great to pray for, but they need the Lord to move in power. Pray, moms. Pray, church. Second, just keep Christ in His name and the gospel central. You know, everybody who was around Philip, I think they knew what mattered to him. It was Christ. He didn't show up wanting to talk politics and kind of settle old rifts with the Samaritans. He didn't debate and argue with him about the location of the temple he didn't defend the superiority of jewish theology he preached christ and he ministered ministered in love to people in jesus's name moms and the rest of us keep jesus central in your thoughts and your affections and your plans and your words and all of life core of our lives and our homes and our church it shouldn't be you know just our regiment of activities or philosophical systems or our code of morality or some basic kind of life principles no it should be it should be jesus christ and everything else develops around that third talk to your children often about the gospel not just until they come to christ and believe in him but i mean we all we're constantly to be rehearsing the gospel the god's grace towards us in christ i Think of, of of the example and, and of, of Timothy with his mother and grandmother and the, the way Second Timothy chapter three and chapter one and I, I won't go there now, but just the gospel would be would be the air that's breathed in your home. Pray for the salvation of your children. The Lord has to overcome as many obstacles to save your precious little son or daughter as he did to save these despised, demon-possessed Samaritans. No less power is needed. The good news of Jesus can do it, though, brothers and sisters. Pray and labor to see your children live as bold witnesses for Jesus Christ wherever they are. Don't just pray for their safety. Pray for their courage. Pray that the Lord would use them as instruments in his hand to bring in a harvest of souls for Christ, even if it means suffering will be part of what God uses to bring that about and model what you pray live live a leveraged life for mission missional motherhood and last may the effect of the gospel in your life and home be one of joy Eric and I were talking about this he's writing a paper he's doing a continuous mdiv work and on repentance and Luke and Acts and and he, he, we're talking about this, but there's always joy on the other side of, of faith and repentance. And, and so it is here with the Samaritans. The city rejoiced as a result of Philip's preaching and teaching and healing. Not saddled with a, ugh, this weight of burdensome responsibilities. They, they didn't become dour and dark and gloomy and moody. Uh, kind of captives to this new and different rigid system of thinking and behaving. No, grace set them free to be joyful. Joyful. It's great. They rejoiced in their freedom. They rejoiced in their newfound rest in Christ. They rejoiced in forgiveness of sins and and, and liberty. They rejoiced and had this happiness and contentment like never before. By God's grace, we can be people of abiding joy because we've tasted of the kindness of the Lord.